This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hi, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to today's Bright Focus Chat, AMD, your questions answered. If this is your first time in a Bright Focus Chat, welcome. Let me tell you briefly about Bright Focus and what we'll do today. Bright Focus funds some of the top researchers in the world. We support scientists who are trying to find cures for macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's. We share the latest news from these scientists with families that are impacted by these diseases. Today's chat is an example of that. We offer a number of free publications and materials at our website, brightfocus.org, and uh, you know, we'll mention some of those materials today, but at any time, visit us at brightfocus.org. Let me tell you about today's guest. We've been very fortunate to, to have her uh, several times over the years, and she's been, been tremendously uh, in, informative and uh, in, in um, and very helpful for us. It is Dr. Gayatri Riley, and Dr. Riley is an ophthalmologist at the Retinal Group of Washington, that's Washington, D.C., and um, she has uh, been very helpful in the past, and we look forward to, to having you back. And so, Dr. Riley, this is the first time you've been back uh, since the pandemic, so I wonder if you can just start off by telling us uh, what's changed. Uh, thanks for having me back. I am super excited to kind of update everybody and hopefully be here as a good source of answers to a lot of the questions that I'm sure um, the listeners have that I've been uh, hearing from my patients every day. Um, I guess the best way of answering that is what hasn't changed. Um, March definitely kind of turned upside down for us. Um, in the Washington, D.C. area, we were uh, kind of fortunate in that we were able to watch what was happening Um you know, around the country, kind of watching what was happening in Washington State and New York City. And we got the guidance of the American Academy of Ophthalmology um, and, and all of our kind of societies that recommended for um, us to be rescheduling uh, non-urgent patients. So um, we actually never closed as a practice. Um, and that is something that was a little bit different from my colleagues in general ophthalmology, um, and mainly because of what we've talked about in many other um, chats before is the the urgency to uh, patients with um, wet macular degeneration and and the the need for uh, monthly injections for these patients to maintain vision. So um, we we made a lot of changes. Um, we were very concerned about patients. We were very concerned about our staff and, and ourselves, um, understandably. So initially, when things were sort of at its um, peak at the time in terms of what we were seeing around us, plus what was happening in New York City, not too far away from us, we actually went to a system where we um, had basically half of our physicians working at a given time. So we're a practice of 30 physicians, and we were fortunate in being able to use our numbers to our, our advantage. We wanted to be here. We wanted to be able to see patients who needed to be seen. We wanted to get patients in and out as quickly as possible, um, and we needed the time to be able to um, you know, clean every, after every patient, before every machine um, that the patient has touched. We had to take time to clean um, all of our instrumentation and things. So um, we really limited our schedules. We were seeing, you know, just uh, probably 20% of what our normal practice was seeing in March. Um, and we were 
quite happy with just being open and available for patients. And those were the patients we kind of identified that we needed to see, the patients who needed to come in for injections. And we called our patients to let them know that we were open and available. And then we did incorporate a bit of a, a telemedicine as well, and we can talk more about that um, for patients who had questions and who are understandably having concerns about, you know, their visits, um, about their safety, how long they could avoid coming into the office, what their expectations could be. So um, that was kind of what we did through March and April, and it, it really worked well for us. We were monitoring all of our technicians, our staff, to make sure nobody was uh, having any symptoms. Um, and, you know, as far as, you know, at that time, we, we hadn't heard any, you know, patients getting um, sick after they were in our office or anything like that. So we were able to kind of survive that first wave up through um, March and April. And then in May, we started to just sort of go go back to a quote-unquote normal schedule, meaning we allowed, you know, patients who were coming in for um, less urgent uh, reasons to start to come back in. But we um, certainly have put a lot of focus on patient safety. So, um, you know, I'm sure we've all experienced the, you know, the doctor's office that the waiting room is packed and then you're sitting in the the waiting room for a while, then you're sitting in another station for a while. We we had to eliminate that for obvious reasons. So we um, I kind of set up our waiting room with just a few chairs all kind of separated by six feet apart. We asked um, patients if anybody was traveling with them, if they could stay in the car or if patients could stay in the car until we were ready for them. We limited our schedules so that we weren't, you know, double booked or anything of that sort. And we extended our hours to be available um, so that we could accommodate everybody. Wow. That's great. No, this is um, a tremendous amount of things that you had to, to do on, on very little notice. And, and yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, discuss many of those points, um, you know, over the next half hour or so. And just, you know, kind of a, a starting point, um, when you, when people um, have been extended or will, you know, are currently extended in terms of treatments, what do you tell them to look for any type of warning signs um, at home if, if there's a little bit of, a little bit more time between, between visits? Yeah. So number one, we talked about the Amsler grid, um, and we've talked about this before and how important it is for all patients who have either dry or wet AMD to be monitoring um, using the Amsler grid. And, um, you know, they were able to look out if there was any new distortion or waviness to their vision. Um, we provided resources for patients who may not have had an Amsler grid where they could download one, where they could print one out from. But more and more, we noticed that, you know, patients have been using a lot of screen time. So they had a lot more time to be reading the newspaper and reading things on the computer. So, we, you know, I was really asking patients to just, you know, periodically cover each eye and, and just make sure things like the edge of your monitor, the edge of your laptop still looks nice and straight, that there's no wave, waviness or distortion to it. So um, that was the, that kind of remains the mainstay of sort of home monitoring for macular degeneration. And I do have 
some patients, and we've talked about the other home monitoring system, the 4C home mm -hmm. device, um, and I had some patients who, who uh, were using that, and that also pr provided some reassurance and some extra bit of ways of monitoring while we couldn't see them. Yeah, well, that, that's great. Well, if So, Dr. Riley, Dr. if somebody is using that AMSLA grid or looking at the computer and things are wavy, what, what should they do then? Best thing to do would be to call call your uh, ophthalmologist. So even though, um, you know, at this point, certainly all the ophthalmologists are um, sort of working again, from my understanding, but everybody still had a responsibility um, for emergencies and could identify where patients could go. And we generally like to see these patients in the office, you know, certainly within the, the first few days of uh, noticing the symptoms if we can. And you know you outlined the 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 kind of operational uh changes that your practice made. Have they been sort of common uh concerns or questions that that your patients have had about the uh uh you know kind of the, the new way of of doing business at an ophthalmologist's office? Yeah, I think there was two aspects of it. Um the first aspect of most of the questions were just in line with you know, I don't want to be waiting in a large waiting room and, you know, certainly can understand that. And then the second aspect of questions was, you know, in, in an ophthalmologist's office and to, to get through a, a complete exam, there's a, a good amount of equipment that is coming near a patient's eye and, and, and coming in contact with a patient's eye or, you know, their face has to go into a certain machine. And so the second group of questions were really just aligned towards, is it safe? You know, is, is there a risk for, for me as a patient to um, put my face into these machines or having these things come close to me? Um, so those were kind of the two main aspects of questions that I, I see the most common yeah, you know, very, 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 very understandable. And uh, I'd like to, you know, spend a few minutes talking about uh, telemedicine, uh, telehealth. I think this has been a a big change for 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 a lot of us. Um, how would you describe, uh, uh, you know, your, the last couple months of of um, interacting with your patients that way? It was actually great, and I, you know, it was something that I was a little apprehensive about because I didn't know what I could do as a as a retina specialist through a telehealth visit. You know, you're you're so used to being where I have to be able to see inside an eye to kind of talk to a patient. And this provided, you know, we had telehealth visits scheduled, you know, all day. Um, and we really able to just first just talk to patients. And it was kind of just nice to see patients and see what they were dealing with. And and kind of not have the same pressures and time constraints as you do in the office. But, you know, you, you sort of realize there's a lot to medicine that is also just kind of you can get from what the patient's experiencing too. So, um, you know, while I couldn't do a complete retinal exam, I still had a pretty good sense of, you know, how a patient was doing, what could I safely and feel comfortably managing you know, without them coming to the office, and what unfortunately did require an office visit to manage. So um, it was a nice chance to touch base with patients and just, like I said, see how they were doing and provide reassurances that, you know, we are still here for them. Um, and, you know, we, while we may just be postponing appointments at this time, you know, this is 
based on how they're doing, I think it would be totally fine. Or, like I said, conversely, based on what a patient might tell me, I might say, you know, this might not be ideal for you, but I do think, you know, we need to see you in the office, and this is what we've done in our office to make you feel comfortable. Right. And, you know, when you think, I guess we all wonder when or if this pandemic will will be over. When you think about the future of medicine, do you think telemedicine is, is here to stay? I do. I mean, I think that, you know, my colleagues and other specialties, you know, I have patients who are general practitioners, and, and that's one thing they have certainly taken away from it all. While we all love seeing our patients in the offices, you know, sometimes, you know, it really does make it much more of an efficient means for a patient that they, they can kind of get the answers that they need safely still, um, but not necessarily have to take a full day out of their schedule to to um, get the answers that they need. So I think there's definitely going to be a role for it. There's going to be this hybrid type of situation where I think some things can be, um, you know, safely managed through telehealth and, um, you know, while there's still going to be a role for office visits. And from what I'm seeing from you know, the insurance companies and, and Medicare, there was so much support given to back up telemedicine, which helped a lot as well. Yeah, that's great. Any, you know, for, for folks that are still making those the adjustment, um, any tips that you'd give uh, patients and their and their families to, to make a telemedicine uh, visit go as well as it can? Um, I think, you know, the, the biggest thing was just sort of the technical difficulties we can all understand. Um, you know, the... The first thing that was helpful for a lot of my patients, they had, you know, a family member just come in and check their microphone and check their speakers and, you know, just sort of make sure that they had the the bare bones of what they would need for the visit. And and then I found my patients, you know, they made a list of questions that they had. And, and while nobody was in a rush, it just kind of kept them on track with what their concerns were. Um, and it kept them nice and organized to make it, uh, you know, uh, a beneficial experience for both of us. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about that. The patients are in the comfort of their own home, so while they might, still telemedicine might be an unfamiliar uh, means of communication. They're they're at their their dining room table, or it's it's, it's interesting. Um, those are really great points. I think they'll help our our audience a lot. And you know, kind of just sort of with me one more question about somehow things have they returned to normal. I put that in quotes. Have um eye surgeries. Uh, uh, resumed in a, in a, they did in so the end of about I think it was the third week of May is when I restarted um, elective surgeries so um, from March through May the only surgeries we were doing were emergencies things like retinal detachments or um, things that were you know vision threatening um, but then around the third week of May they they uh, released the restrictions and allowed for elective surgeries. Now, each area has their own requirements um, as to what is necessary to undergo a surgical procedure. So I would certainly recommend touching base with your surgeon or surgical coordinator who's helping you to just sort of see what's necessary because for for at least in my area, we, we, do, rec- we do require uh, COVID testing prior to uh, surgery and there's you know other things that need to be done before surgery that we didn't require prior to all this. Yeah, no, it's great advice to to check how it applies for your particular practice. One uh, 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 questioner from from New York is wondering that she has heard that dark uh, that green vegetables uh, help 
delay macular degeneration. I'm wondering, you say, is that true? And kind of what type of, of, of vegetables uh, would be most uh, helpful? Yeah, absolutely. The, we, we categorize the green leafy vegetables, so the spinach and the arugula and the kales, the, the leafy greens as to having high levels of antioxidants, um, specifically uh, lutein and zeaxanthine. Those are the two antioxidants that are very helpful um, to decrease the progression of macular degeneration. And they're found in highest quantities in things like spinach and arugula. Any of your leafy greens um, are, are very helpful for patients who are at high risk or, or just concerned about their macular degeneration risks. Well, great. That's helpful. Earlier you mentioned, uh, you know, kind of the increased screen time that I think all of us are having. Uh, we have a listener this morning. Are there devices that, that help somebody uh, be better able to use a, uh, a computer or a, a, a tablet of, of any kind? There are. And, you know, there's so many different programs that are out there for patients specifically who might not have uh good vision for computers or whether it's from glaucoma or from macular degeneration, if they have trouble seeing the entire screen, there's actually a system that's basically like a talking computer where um, there's software that's built into a system that can scan what's on the screen and convert it into sound so you can listen to what's on the screen. The best thing I always recommend, there's and there's a, a lot of things sort of like that you can um, do things just the, even as simple as, you know, changing the glare and contrast on your monitor to, to help make uh, your the, the screen a little bit easier for you to see. But the best thing I always recommend, and we've spoken about this before, is, you know, all patients, even if they have pretty good vision from macular degeneration, really should see a low vision specialist at some point. And low vision specialists do an amazing job of going through, you know, a day-to-day -day schedule with a patient and what their needs are and, and can kind of identify what devices or screens or things that might make their lives a little bit easier, which can go a long way. Yeah, well, that's, that's great. Great advice. And as you can imagine, we're getting some questions about um, about the injections um, that, that people receive. Question, I don't think we've ever had this before in a chat. Somebody's wondering, if you get injections for a number of years, do, do they lose their effectiveness uh, over time? That's a great question. Um, so the the short answer is no. Um, the more complicated answer is that it depends. So, um, you know, just like we see, it's a little bit patient dependent. When it comes to medications, I do have ha I have had some patients that seem to get used to a medication and they may not be getting worse, but they no longer see the same benefit that they used to, you know, let's say a couple of years ago. Thankfully now, though, we have, you know, three, four different medications that typically we can switch the medication and then they can, you know, uh, expect to see a benefit for many, many years. I'd say that that's less common, though. Majority of patients do very, very well for long periods of time on, you know, the same medication. Great. We are related to you mentioned different types of medications. One of our listeners uh, would like to know what you think of Bayoview, one of the one of the newer medicines on the market. Bayoview is complicated as well. Um, I think it is an amazing medication. I personally am currently no longer using it. The reason why I'm sure the the 
question came out is that there, while it did very well in the phase three clinical trials, um, we saw that once we started to use it, um, there was a higher than acceptable rate of inflammation in the blood vessels in the eye. And we saw rates of that were, that were not the same as the other medications that we've used, and they were not truly acceptable to um, offer patients with that. So what the American Society of Retina Specialists decided was that you you can use it. It's still available. However, they recommend that, you know, we, we, number one, really think about whether we need to use the medication. And for now, most of us are not using it until the manufacturer and, you know, the, they can kind of figure out what might be causing this this potential uh, adverse event that is rather serious in the eye. Sure. And related to that, we've got a, f- a few questions wondering, um, are there new uh, other other new treatments um, coming down the the line over the next few years? Yeah, you know, macular degeneration. The time right now is, is pretty exciting, both for both dry and wet macular degeneration. And we spend a lot of time talking about wet macular degeneration because of the treatments that we have. But we're finally seeing some progress in the research for dry macular degeneration, specifically in the in the advanced form of the disease with uh, with uh, geographic atrophy where we're progressing into phase 3 trials which um which is you know one of the the last key steps before it can be FDA approved so there's definitely both medications for dry and wet macular degeneration that is do, that are doing very well um in these phase 3 clinical trials and different modalities of treatment as well. So we we are very familiar with injections in the eye, but there's, you know, other ways we can deliver medications, um, and they've also been explored. So I think the landscape in the next five, ten years is going to be quite exciting and and offer some much better therapies for patients. That's great. And so um, kind of related to, to, you know, new new research. We have a few uh, questioners asking about uh, both gene therapy and stem cell uh, treatments. And I think a lot of people, those names, those terms sound familiar, but I don't think a lot of people know what they are and whether that, you know, has any hope for AMD. So the pro- so there's definitely hope um, and there's definitely a lot of research in the very beginning stages for, for each. Um, gene therapy, we're talking about in macular degeneration being complex because there's a lot of different genes that are implicated for macular degeneration. So it's not it's much easier to do something when it comes to gene therapy when there's one gene that you can identify for a disease and then you can try to um, modify that to not cause the disease. For macular degeneration, both dry and wet are associated with more than one genes um and and have additional factors that are implicated in its its pathogenesis so it's a little bit more tricky with gene therapy um but i would say that we're definitely still in the early parts of exploration um in, in terms of research for there stem cell therapy is different stem cell therapy is the thought that you could regenerate cells using stem cells so um, in patients who have had um, cell loss due to macular degeneration, which is in the form of losing um, 
losing tissue in your central vision, which is a big reason why both dry and wet macular degeneration patients lose vision. Um, the, the idea is that these stem cells could actually recreate the cells that have been lost in that area. And we we have seen some limited success in conditions that are um, similar, a bit a bit um, worse than macular degeneration, um, but these are still very, very early but promising um, trials at this point. Hmm. That's good to know. Uh, if, you know a few more uh, questions from our listeners. Um, somebody's asking about retina replacement. You know, with these, these diseases uh, in, impact the retina, and, you know, we hear about hip replacement and knee replacement and a lot of other uh, modern medicine. Is there... Um, such a thing as retina replacement, or will there be uh, down the road? Um, there's not a thing such as a retinal transplant or a retinal replacement. The, there's a lot of structures in the eye that you can transplant and you can replace, um, but the retina um, to date so far has not been uh, successfully been transplanted. Um, one thing we have seen some success with, though, um, and this question may or may not be alluding to that, um, is sort of bypassing the retina um, and and trying to utilize other means of providing the brain with the same information without using the retina in between. So that is something that is, again, fairly early on in the exploration phases, um, but that would be a bit more plausible than transplanting a retina. Uh, caller is wondering um, about um, vitamins. Uh, are there vitamins uh, that they should be asking their doctor about and, and possibly taking to uh, for either uh, wet or dry AMD? Well, we know the ARIDS two vitamins. These are vitamins that contain vitamin C, E, those antioxidants I spoke about earlier, lutein and zeaxanthine, zinc and copper. Now, that's that's all. All of those vitamins are. Um, in in a vitamin called the ARIDS-2 vitamins. And these are specific for patients who have uh, dry macular degeneration in an intermediate level. So I think, number one, it's a great conversation. It's a great, great question for your doctor um, because every patient is different. And for a lot of patients, they will not see any benefit from taking these vitamins. Um, there's been no proven use of these vitamins prophylactically. They don't prevent anything. But if you do have dry macular degeneration, they might be very helpful for you. So I think it's a very good question, but it's also a very good question for your doctor. Great. And where would somebody uh, find an ARIDS-2 vitamin? Is that in, in stores or is that prescription? Or? It's not prescription, which is, which is good. Um, you can find it in your grocery store, your pharmacy. Um, different companies uh, make it. The key is that you do want to make sure it has that formula on it. Um, it gets very confusing, even for myself, if you go to the vitamin section. There's you know, things that say vitamins for your eye and your eye health and things like that, but they won't say AREDS2 formula on it. And that is very specific for uh, the medication that you would need for dry macular degeneration. But it is found in the grocery store. Pharmacists are always helpful to help find what you need, um, but you do not need a prescription for it. No, that's that's great advice. I appreciate that because I know that that section of the store can can get a little little overwhelming. So uh, to our listeners, it's A R E D S and then the number two. So Areds A R E D S and the and 
in the number the number two. Um, uh, a few questions about cataracts in AMD. Like, does one cause the other, and is there anything about cataract surgery that would either help or hurt someone's AMD? No, and that's one thing that is a really good question because for quite some time, and we still continue to sort of fight against this myth that doing cataract surgery will worsen macular degeneration. And there may have been a point in time, um, you know, years ago when that was true, but thankfully with the um, improvements in cataract surgery that we don't find that to be the case now. So um, they are unrelated. They are both seen in elderly, you know, as patients get older, we see both cataracts, which is the cloudiness of the lens, as well as macular degeneration. One does not cause the other. Um, and cataracts, if you do choose to remove them with surgery, would not impact your macular degeneration. And I have a question, listener wondering, you know, they hear about laser surgery for, um, uh, you know, vis visual acuity. Is there any laser surgery, uh, maybe down the road, um, for AMD? No, actually, we started off our therapies with laser therapy, and the injections have replaced that. Um, we started, um, you know, in the 90s with a laser treatment for these areas for wet macular degeneration, but we found that while they did work, they also caused a lot of damage and a lot of scarring to the central vision, and the injections have now replaced that as a treatment. Um, I don't foresee any laser um, being um, superior to injections in the near future. Great. Which I'm just a, a few more questions. And, you know, as you know, um, uh, a lot of families, as, as AMD is age-related, um, a lot of families that uh, may also have uh, someone in the household who is impacted um, uh, by, by dementia at, at various stages. So in, in your practice, um, you know, how does that work, um, you know, well, work best um, when there's a patient that, that um, you know, is at some stage of cognitive decline? Or any, any advice you could give uh, family members and, and caregivers for how to navigate um, an eye care appointment while there's also um, some, some impact of, uh, of dementia? You know, there's always a period of time in a day that most patients with dementia tend to be at their best. Um, I usually try to ask, the family or the caregivers to make appointments around that time of the day because that definitely makes the experience a lot a lot more fulfilling for the patient as well as everybody who's involved in the care. So it may not be at 8 o'clock in the morning. At that, while that might be more of a convenient time to bring the patient, it may not be the best time for the patient. Um, and I think family really helps. Um, you know, whenever a patient is coming to an office that they're not familiar with, there's an anxiety that's there if you're completely, you know, you're having no cognitive difficulties. So um, going to an unfamiliar place but still having a familiar family member helps quite a bit. I think there are things that the, the family member can do in advance um, to, you know, whether it's communicating with your practice or communicating with the um, with the patient that, that, that could help uh, that that appointment go goes well as it can. I think both. Um, I've spent a lot of times, you know, speaking with family members before seeing a, a patient, and and they can kind of give me an idea of what the the needs are for the patient. You know, I mean, treatment is always going to be patient dependent, and the more information I have, the the better I can make an appropriate 
treatment plan that would be in the patient's best interest. So I think definitely reaching out to the physician and kind of talking over, you know, a few things is definitely helpful, whether it's before um, or after a visit. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I think, to, you know, talking, again, when it comes to from family, it's it's received a lot better for, for patients because they're, they know who they know who they're talking to, and if you know it's explained what's happening, what's going to happen, why we're doing this, you know we want you to be able to you know watch television or you know just whatever explanation is necessary it, it certainly is helpful yeah. and um to our listeners uh before we uh you know con- have some concluding remarks from Dr. Riley, we'd like to ask a simple one question survey to help us guide. Uh, future bright focus to, uh, chats to make sure that the topics are, are as helpful as we can get. So it's a simple one-question survey. Uh, overall, how would you rate today's chat? If you found it very helpful, press one. Somewhat helpful, press two. And not helpful, press three. So again, uh, help us uh, with future, pick future topics by uh, saying if you found today very helpful, press one. Somewhat helpful, two. And not helpful, three. And um, uh, Dr. Riley, as we conclude, you, you know, it's been a, a sure a very uh, tumultuous few months for you, um, you know, and your patients. Um, any kind of uh, concluding, you know, observations or recommendations for uh, whatever the future holds for the pandemic? Um, how we can how we can best uh, navigate that, particularly our, our vision health. I think the best thing is really being open with the communication. I had so many patients who were just genuinely afraid. And I know it was a really honest statement and it wasn't something I was particularly surprised about, but they didn't want to, they were avoiding what was happening with their vision because they didn't know what, they didn't know what the conditions would be here, you know? And, and I think just calling the office, asking, you know, the, the office manager or the physician, you know, what, what precautions are being taken? What concerns that you might have? Do should I be um, bringing somebody? Or and you know all of these different questions you can have answered before you before you come in, so that you know if you are experiencing you know vision loss and you're worried about um, your safety, you know hopefully you can feel reassured with the situation. And I and I found that you know like I said when I was using the telemedicine. Uh, platform that was a lot of my conversations was just sort of reassuring them that you know we're not taking this lightly here you know we really do worry about patients and um you know and and we don't want anybody losing vision because they are worried about their appointment well that's fantastic advice i think it really is sort of a a microcosm of of the entire uh pandemic experience to that to just have good communication and to recognize that that we're all we're all in this together um the 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 physicians and the staff and the patients and where the future goes i think is is a lot to do with how how we work uh collectively in the face of these challenges so well dr riley it was fantastic to to have you back and i think uh so much has changed since since you've last been with us. So really appreciate um you know the, the details you gave about how um how your practice is is working in these new times and updates about uh uh you know new medicines coming down the road and and, and vitamins and diets. So just really, you know, on behalf of Bright Focus, I want to thank you for, for being so helpful to us today. Thanks for having me again.
The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.